Hi everyone. Just wanted to start this episode with a quick content warning to say I'm going to be talking about loss and grief, so things might get a little bit emotional. It's a very tough subject and still quite raw for me, but I decided that um, if me talking about my own experiences helps someone in similar circumstances, that's a very powerful and lovely thing. Thanks for sticking with me, guys. Hope you enjoy. everyone, Carrie here. Welcome back to another episode of the Wheelie Stagey podcast. Now, the observant among you will remember that we were last here in January when I spoke about Lester Curve's fantastic stream production of Sunset Boulevard and my first trip to the Barn Theatre in Sirencester to see a sweet and incredibly inventive one-man version of Peter Pan. It's now June, so that's another absence to chalk up. I promise I don't mean for this to be a habit, but it seems to be. And I'd like to spend the rest of this episode, this is going to be one that's quite difficult for me, and uh, but very dear to my heart, because I'm going to be talking about somebody very special to me and explain why I've been away so long again. So... This year, the start of this year hasn't been the kindest to me or my family. We lost my dad on January 16th, completely suddenly and unexpectedly. We had to wait a while for the cause of his death to be confirmed, but it was eventually determined as an ab- abdominal aortic aneurysm. For the non-medical folks among you, like myself, that's where a bulge in the artery from one's heart to the stomach ruptures and it manifests itself very similarly in the way a heart attack does. My understanding is that symptoms can include back and stomach pain that is persistent and heart palpitations but that there are usually no early symptoms and often these kind of aneurysms are only picked up via screening or tests for other reasons. I've later discovered they usually test um, for these kind of aneurysms in men of age 65 and above and my dad was 62 when he passed. I saw my dad the day before he died. I randomly bumped into him at the supermarket and we laughed and joked the way we often did. There was no hint of anything untoward And I think that's what I found quite hard initially, the fact that he obviously had this, but nobody knew anything about it. I remember getting the call from my mum asking me to come home to my flat. I'd just gone for a walk around the block. And I find it really hard to explain, but I kind of knew what she was going to tell me. I asked where my dad had been and if he'd been alone. We later found out that someone had been with him until the ambulance arrived, sort of talking to him and helping him stay calm. I'm glad about that. This period of grief has been a strange and incredibly 
intense time. I know in the early days, a particular lyric from the musical version of Ghost and Molly's song With You sums it all up quite accurately for me. She sings, you never leave my mind, so much of you is left behind. And that really sums up where I was mentally in those early days. I'd struggle to look at photos of dad without getting emotional. Um, I still have his number saved on my mobile and I've got the last text and WhatsApp messages we sent each other. And I noticed for me, the grief seemed to manifest itself um, as physical pain. So I would have headaches, pain in my shoulders, and it would also exacerbate my back issues. And I vividly remember my sleep being quite badly affected um, as well, um, particularly in those early days. And as I so often am, I became quite good at bottling things up. Like I would take my grief to bed with me, so to speak, just to be alone and kind of process it on my own as well. And I try and seek comfort in music, a podcast, or try and get lost in a book. I have long stretches where I feel okay, and I find it will then hit me quite violently, whether it be a memory or just I have moments where I'm like, I really miss my dad, or I'm thinking about him a lot. And I think it's going to be like that for at least the foreseeable future if not the rest of my life I'm gonna have ups and downs like that and I that's what I was hearing from a lot of my friends who very kindly reached out to me during this time is that grief can be a bit of a roller coaster and that's okay and to be expected and some days are going to be better than others. I've been to stay with my mum over um, recent months and I'm really glad we had each other for support. It's been up and down as I and my whole family come to terms with the whole his absence has left and I suspect will always leave in my life. I don't know yet if it gets easier but I find you just learn to cope with it. I, and I, personally, for me, one of the things I've noticed is um, as I've adjusted to my dad no longer being here is how easy I find it to talk about him with humour and a smile. And I want to hold on to that. And I hope I never lose that because it took me a while to get to that point. My dad was always one of my biggest champions. I remember at his funeral service, my mum got up and did the eulogy for him and was talking, eventually got around to talking about um, my dad as a parent. And they were talking, mum mentioned a specific instance um, instance when the doctors were talking to my parents about me and my quality of life and the issues I was going to face 
and I imagine that must be really daunting. And I, I didn't know this at the time, but um, my dad turned around to my mum and said, don't worry, we are going to make sure that she has the best life that we can give her and that she can have. And that was really heartening for me to hear that. I took great comfort um, from that particular moment of the service because I know that my dad wasn't great about talking about his feelings. So just to know he felt that way was really comforting. Um, we, so I say he was always one of my biggest champions and he could always make me laugh like nobody else could and always fought my corner. And I like to think we were actually quite similar in a lot of ways. Like we were both quite stubborn and don't like to be told that we're in the wrong. And um, again, I, again, we had quite similar sort of sense of humour, and we we could always make each other laugh, even even if I didn't, even if I didn't want to laugh at him he'd always he'd always know how to make me crack now where my dad and I differed quite drastically though was with my love of theatre it just wasn't his cup of tea and he didn't get it I remember the one time I tried or I did persuade him to come to London and see a show um was when I was at a musical with a friend and he went to a play and we met up with him after the show and he admitted to me that he actually walked out at the interval. <laughs> so uh, that wasn't a very successful trip. I tried in vain to get him to come and see Les Mis with me and he point blank refused on the basis that it was sung through like he'd consistently say to me Kerry why have they got to sing everything why can't they just speak Jersey Boys was another one that I was quite desperate to share with him um, and I came so close at one point um, he, we'd actually arranged to go together and sort of the evening before he actually said no love take a friend they'll, they'll enjoy it more and you'll have a better time. Um, he could, and he could never understand as well why I'd make repeat trips to certain shows. He'd always say to me, it's the same, surely. Why are you paying money to go and see something you've already seen? Um, surely the script's the same all the time. By that same token, though, if I'd gone to see something new to me, and just take a punt on something I wouldn't necessarily choose to see and didn't like it, um, he'd laugh at that as well. So I couldn't, I couldn't win. And contrary to um, popular opinion, that has actually happened. It doesn't happen often. I generally like um, all of the shows that I see for different reasons. But a particular long-running musical and a Shakespeare adaptation come to mind there. I'll leave you to work out what ones I could be thinking of. That being said, Dad always understood how important 
my theatre was to me and was always so generous in his support of me. He'd regularly give up his weekends to drive me to the theatre, whether that be here in Bristol, up to London, to Chichester, to Manchester, um, just wherever wherever the theatre went, really. Um, he'd always wait for me while I was chatting to my favourites at stage door, um, especially any time that involved seeing Hadley Fraser. I know that over the years, Hadley did manage to make a point of thanking Dad for bringing me to support him if he caught up with Dad. And I remember the first time that they shook hands and probably spoke, it warmed my heart and soul. And I always smile when I remember how surprised and flattered um, Dad was when Hadley gave me the very special gift that now resides on my living room wall. In that way, Dad also became known to the friends I've made within the theatre community, many of whom I know might listen to this. You know who you are. I love and miss you all. And that made me so happy, even though I know Dad's Scottish accent sometimes caused some issues and got lost in trans and things got lost in translation. So you see, I wanted to link what has been a rough time in my life to something I love and enjoy. And celebrating my dad got me to thinking about some of my favourite fathers and father figures within theatre. Five particular candidates came to mind along with some honourable mentions. And so, without further ado, may I present The Show Dad. Okay, so the first Show Dad I'd like to talk to you about is the dad whose wise advice will guide you through life. And for me, that's Mufasa. I couldn't think of anybody better for this first category. I mean, sure, he's killed by Scar, so in the grand scheme of the show, he doesn't have a lot of stage time, but the lessons he instills in Simba are the linchpin of the show. Simba spent the latter half of the first act and most of the second living his best Hakuna Matata lifestyle in the jungle with Timon and Pumbaa. And it takes an, an encounter where Mufasa says, you have forgotten who you are and so forgotten me, an arousing rendition of he lives in you, for Simba to realise the error of his ways and hot-foot it back to the Pride Lands to take his place in the great circle of in the great circle of life. Even before that point, for me, Mufasa has some lovely moments with young Simba trying to teach him and admitting that even he gets scared at times. And there's also a lovely conversation that, that um, Mufasa has with Zazu, where Mufasa is talking to Zazu about the fact that he wants to encourage Simba to be curious and adventurous and all, all those positive things. But the fact that Simba just runs into trouble all the time um, has him worried. And I love it because Zazu turns around and essentially is like, yes, sire, 
He reminds me of someone else I think we both know quite well. And the two have a laugh and it's just really sweet. And always makes me smile. And pure and simple. Let's just be honest. I love Shauna Scoffrey who plays who plays Mufasa. His take on the role is just incredibly warm and charismatic. And he's got a singing voice like Velvet to boot. So... I, I can't wait to eventually be able to get back and experience his rendition of They Live In You again at the top, near the top of the show because it's stunning. Always gives me goosebumps. Lots of what I love about the stage version of The Lion King is unique to it. So things that we don't see in the film. Here I've got to talk about um, one of my favourite moments and numbers in the show and that is... Um, Endless Night, Simba's solo number. Now, it's a song that I've always enjoyed, but I think is going to resonate with me differently. Now I've lost my dad. Um, it's essentially Simba kind of exploring and confronting his own grief. And I know that's going to resonate with me more powerfully. Now, there is a particular moment in the song towards the end where Simba says, I know that the night must end, I know that the sun will rise, and I'll hear your voice deep inside. That lyric has brought me tremendous comfort during an incredibly dark time in my life, and I've taken it to heart since. I've actually got a cushion that we had made from one of my dad's old shirts and I asked for those lyrics to be put on there so that I can be reminded of that message as I say it's just brought me comfort and I spent I spent many as as you'll probably realize I haven't subjected any of you to my singing there when I was rattling off those lyrics but that one in particular became a staple of um when I go to bed and if I was feeling particularly sad, I'd just spend a couple of minutes belting out that number to myself in my bedroom. And like I say, it's just brought me comfort. So yes, we have Mufasa, the dad whose wise, wise advice will guide you through life. Now, the next two candidates I want to um, talk to you about are the dads I like to the dads, I like to say, are the dads that show that family isn't just about blood. One of them is probably going to be familiar to a lot of you. The other one, maybe not so much. So I know through my love of theatre, I've found my community and people I consider to be my extended family, despite us not being related by blood. So that's why it was important for me to talk, it felt important to me to talk about these next two, the dads who show that family isn't just about blood. And first up, as promised, it'll probably be one that a lot of you recognise, and that's Jean Valjean. Yes, Les Miserables own 24601, who, wishing to make amends, takes on Fantine's daughter, Cosette, 
and raises her as his own. Though he hides his past and thereby her true parentage from her, the show makes it very clear that he does so to keep her safe and happy. He even goes above and beyond to rescue the boy he knows that she loves and through that deems his own life unworthy before God. Can you bring him home? And later on in the show, he refers to her as the best of his life, a moment that never fails to choke me up. And I just love that the fact that um, Valjean's redemptive arc is so rooted in him finding his family is just something that I find really touching and moving. Over my time as a Les Mis fan, I've seen 10 different actors take on the role. I'm going to rattle them off for you now. Um, again, ex- um, as in previous episodes, apologies for my pronunciation on some of these, but I'll do my best. So, number one, the first version I saw was Chris Jacobson, followed by Alfie Bow. Then I had Chris Holland. Then I've had Hieronimo Rauch, Simon Gleason, Peter Lockyer, Dean Chisnell, Daniel Coek, Ramin Karimlu, and Killian Donnelly. I've got my favourites, five of those in particular. No, I'm not going to tell you which, because I know talking about favourite portrayals, um, particularly when it comes to Les Mis and Jean Valjean, can be rather um, divisive. But each actor always brings something fresh and different to the role, which means quite often I take different things away from their performances and the characters' relationships. The best Valjeans, for me, can really make me feel something if their interactions with Cosette when she is younger manage to hit me in the feels, like particularly when he takes her away from the Thenardiers and gives her a doll and she runs up and hugs him like if that moment can make me kind of go oh and feel warm and fuzzy then we're on to a winner and of course if the actor can carry that through to when Cosette is older like that sense of sort of loyalty and fierce protectiveness that can really um, translate well for me and becomes the sort of what I love so much about that that relationship. And again, each actor sort of plays on, particularly in scenes with older Cosette, um, they each take something different out of that dynamic and play around with it. And it can be really fun and interesting to watch. So alongside Valjean, the next father figure I want to sit um in with Valjean here is Albin slash Zaza from La Caja Falls. Now, this musical is by Jerry Herman and it's in turn an adaptation of a 1973 play um, with a book by Harvey Firestein, originally premiered on Broadway in 1983, so quite a long time before I was born but it's one that I eventually became familiar with. At the time it opened it broke barriers for representation being one of the first musicals to centre around a homosexual relationship. Set in Saint-Tropez we follow Georges 
a nightclub owner and his relationship with his partner Alban, who in turn is Lakaj's star as drag queen and performer Zaza. Now, Georges has a son from a previous marriage to a lady called Sybil, Jean-Michel. And Jean-Michel has recently got engaged and wants to bring his fiancée Anne to meet the parents. The only problem, Anne's parents are ultra-conservative and Jean-Michel has lied to everybody, saying that his father Georges is a retired diplomat with the French Foreign Service and still married to his mother, Sybil. So, what transpires, Jean-Michel asks his father to convince Albin to absent himself and instead invites Sybil, who hasn't actually been a part of Jean-Michel's life, and redecorate the apartment. When he eventually finds out, Albin is deeply hurt. He actually goes on stage and sings I Am What I Am, which of course, as we know, is about being proud of who you are and refusing to change. One of my favourite songs from the show there. Now, I first saw Lacage on its inaugural UK tour four years ago, back in 2017. Um, John Partridge played Albin and Adrian Smed played George. Um, And quite honestly, I was totally on Albin's side at this point, but even more so come the second act. Why? And that's because Albin relents as he doesn't want to give up on Jean-Michel because he's essentially raised him as his own for um, the past 24 years. So he um, eventually comes to dinner um, dressed as Sybil. And, of course, hilarity and some um, quite sort of difficult and awkward conversations ensue. Um, And the emotional crux is Jean-Michel having to come to terms with the impact his request to his dad, what what that's done to the the rest of the family, particularly Alban. And I love a line from Georges close to the end of the show where he says, if we have done our jobs correctly, you will leave with more than a folded programme and a torn ticket stub. And that for me sums up my experience of the show and why I love it so much. It makes me laugh. Like a lot of the time nowadays, some of the humour might be considered quite dated and things have moved on. But it made me laugh and warmed my heart. And above all, it just highlighted for me that family and love comes in lots of different forms. And that was my biggest takeaway from that show. Now, for folks who don't know this show and it's new to them, may I please recommend, if you want a cast album to check out, may I please recommend the new Broadway cast album from 2010 um, featuring Douglas Hodge and Kelsey Grammer. This production I know transferred to Broadway 
after running at the Menu Chocolate Factory in 2008, where it originally starred Douglas and Philip Quast. Now, some of you will know that I fell completely in love with Douglas Hodge after he came into my life in the musical version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in 2014. I adored that show and his take on the role and I've been longing to see him on stage again since. Haven't yet had the opportunity, hope to one day, but as always I as always I was late to the party and discovered Douglas as Albin and Zaza in Lacage after that and ever since uh, that particular cast album is one I play happily and often so yeah I'd encourage everyone to check that out it just leaves me with a smile on my face there's a particular song um, called The Best of Times which again is one that I listen to when I want um, when I feel like I need a lift and there's another song um, called actually the reprise of the song in particular, but there's also a song um, with you on my arm that I love. So yeah, check that one out if you have a chance. Now, for my last two candidates, I want to start with a spoiler alert because we're moving away from musical theatre and onto a play, a very special play about the boy who lived. 19 years later. Yes, I'm going there, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. I promise I'm going to make this next section as spoiler-free as I can. But it felt important to talk about these two, um, for me in particular, because I really, really love the kind of journey that they go on and how my relationship to these particular characters has changed thanks to the play. So next up we've got the dads who don't always get it right but they love deeply and that's Harry Potter and Draco Malfoy. I know from personal experience that Jack Thorne's play, of course from an idea from J.K. Rowling, can stir up a lot of strong, divisive emotions. You've got whole conversations about if it's cat, is it canon? Um, there's a lot of sort of disquiet around the plot and so on. Me personally, I'm a huge fan and I've been lucky enough to see it six times thus far. And I always find new things to delight in and take away from it. I love the play for lots of different reasons. One, it's rooted in my favourite book of the series, Goblet of Fire. Um, the technical wizardry still makes me scratch my head, even after all these trips. Um, my favourite illusion has to do with Harry and Ginny's bed, but the phone box always raises... raises uh, put my teeth back in, try again, raises a smile as well. But the main reason this place speaks to me is, is that it's about family. So you've got your chosen family and your blood family, friendship and people wanting to connect, 
notably, of course, Harry and Draco with their sons, Albus and Scorpius, both of whom are dealing with issues of their own. life at Hogwarts, Albus Severus Potter is feeling the pressure of living under the shadow of the family name. Scorpius Malfoy is being plagued with whispers about his true parentage. The two meet on their first Hogwarts Express and become fast friends, much to Harry's dismay in particular. Now, I want to start by sort of clearing this up. I don't think Harry is a bad parent. He makes some pretty crappy decisions throughout the course of the play, particularly when it becomes when it comes to Albus's well-being. In fact, it's something that Harry says to Albus in the heat of the moment that makes him that gives us the catalyst for the um, emotional arc and the drama. And for me, why I invest so much in Harry as he is in this piece. For disclosure, I actually didn't like or understand Harry very much when I read the original books. And that has changed um, completely thanks to this play. I connect with him a lot more emotionally and kind of understand where he was you know, where the character had been and where he's going. And that's because Cursed Child isn't afraid to show that Harry is flawed and he makes mistakes, as all dads are and probably will do at some point in our lives. He admits that he struggles to understand Albus and spends the entirety of the play dealing with regret and his own insecurities. And in the end, the whole piece is about Harry kind of saying, I want to be a good dad for you. I'm trying. And for me, that something about that is really honest and refreshing and touching. And actually, one of my favourite scenes that brings that all together is actually a conversation between Harry and Ginny, where she says, she says to him, people think they they know all there is to know about you, but the best bits about you are, have always been, heroic in really quiet ways. My point is, after this is over, just remember, if you could, that sometimes people, but particularly children, just want someone to play Exploding Snap with. And there's also a lovely scene between Albus and Ginny, where Albus essentially says to her, Mum, I'm sorry, this is all my fault, or what we're kind of going through right now. And she turns to him, gives him a hug, and says, How funny, your dad seems to think it's all his strange pair that you are. So their kind of entire journey is about 
them kind of finding that sort of common ground and way to connect and Harry's got to learn how to to show Albus in particular that he loves him specifically and that Albus feels that and for me that was just something that really kind of is really powerful about the play. Draco too as he is in this piece gave me a complete emotional 360 uh, compared to his um, how he's written in the book. I still get the swagger and the charisma that kind of personified my dislike of the character um, in the early books but for me Chris Child makes Draco a more rounded character. He's actually really, really funny and witty. I'm, I kid you not, there's a line of his. And like I say, I've seen the play six times and I still belly laugh like I've never heard it before in my life. Um, James, James Howard, if you're listening, you'll know the one. Uh, is actually, so Drake is actually really witty and not afraid to be vulnerable. He and Scorpius are actually going through a loss themselves of Astoria, Draco's wife and Scorpius's mother and their journey is about them becoming closer as well. They have some really really sweet and lovely moments. There is one in the later stages of the play where um, they're reunited and Draco turns to Scorpius and he says to him we can hug too, if you like. And initially it's quite awkward because you can tell that they haven't really been used to being sort of tactile with each other in that sense and affectionate in that way. But um, Draco smiles and it's just a really, really sweet sort of awe moment that, again, never fails to uh, warm my heart and make me feel happy. What I love as well is that it's Draco that calls Harry out on some of his crappy decision-making and parenting skills. They have a, there's a scene in the play where Draco storms in and he essentially says to Harry, what have you been doing? My son is in tears and I'm his father and I want to make sure he's all right and I'm asking you why you've made the decision that you've made. Um, and with with all these things, I've got to give major kudos to my original Draco, James Howard, and particularly my second Harry Potter, Jamie Ballard. I've also had the joy of seeing Jamie Glover originally, but James and Jamie... Um, are the major driving force as to why I love and understand these two characters so much more than I did when I read the books first as, as a teenager and even as an adult. Both are incredible and really kind of, they really understand their character, well for me anyway, I think they really understand their characters and where they've been and why they are the way that they are now and they always manage to make that really nuanced and effective 
and the pair of them are incredible and they so easily break my heart and then manage to piece it back together again in the best possible way every single Saturday that I've had the pleasure of seeing the play. I don't doubt that seeing it now is going to be different. Um, it's going to hit me differently now that I've lost Dad and I'll take different things away from it. But I'm looking, I'm looking forward to having that sort of change in my relationship with the piece and sort of see if I take different things from it. And I know I want it to continue being a staple in my diary. Now, a few honourable mentions that I didn't slide in um, earlier on go to Captain Von Trapp, of course, from The Sound of Music, and Billy Elliot's dad for their growth, and for Lin-Manuel Miranda's Dear Theodosia from Hamilton, and Steve Martin and Edie Brickell's I Can't Wait from their musical Bright Star, two of my favourite songs about parenthood. There we have it then, folks, some of my favourite fathers and father figures in theatre. And I just wanted to close out this episode by saying a massive thank you to all of my friends near and far who have been such a wonderful support to me during this time. It means a lot more than I think many of you realised. And just knowing that you've all had my back through such a horrendous time really means a lot. And I don't think I'll ever be able to say thank you enough. Um, it felt right that I share this particular episode on Father's Day too, although that wasn't my original intention. So... If, like me, you are without your dad today, aren't on great terms with him, or spend the day treating him like the king he is, you have all my love and support. folks I've got I'm supposed to have a trip to Chichester um coming up 
in July, but at time of recording, um, lockdown has been extended and I know that's going to affect audience capacity. So I actually don't know if my plan for next, the next episode is going to go ahead, but I hope so. If it does, I'll be off to the South Pacific by way of Chichester for an enchanted evening, or should I say matinee. Take care, guys. See you next time. Thank you.